always wrong. I'm just a failure. You know, that person's a real jerk. I should be further along in my life by now. You just can't trust people. They always do you wrong. Henry Ford said, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason so few engage in it. Welcome to the Vanessa Londino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Londino. So before we get into the podcast today, I want to thank you all. We just reached 15,000 plays. That is not an insignificant number. It's a drop in the bucket in terms of podcasting. But, and this is what today is about, we're not going to discount the positive. We're not going to discount the positive small steps that it takes to grow something. Every step counts. And so in this house and in my life, we celebrate victories. And 15,000 is nothing to laugh at, nothing to scoff at. That's quite an accomplishment. And you all are making that happen. I have not listened to this podcast 15,000 times and think, I think I've listened to it twice. Uh, So 14,998 of them are from you. Uh, So thank you. Thank you for listening to this, for engaging the content, for sharing the podcast, for growing the community. We are doing great. Okay. So a couple of thoughts. We're living in a world where everyone's pretty reactive, high emotions, lots of polarization politically, families are splitting apart, lots of activism, lots of reactivism, reactivity. People are jumping to conclusions. I'm going to talk about that quite a bit today. What's going on from a mental health perspective? What is going on with the world we live in? because it seems like it's on fire in a way that it never has been, right? At least that's what I'm observing. And it just seems to be the world over. People are more short-tempered. They're quicker to make assumptions. What's going on? From a mental, emotional perspective, what's going on? You know, in AA, there's a phrase that alcoholics in recovery use, and it's called stinkin' thinkin'. And what it refers to is the thought patterns that got you into the mess you were in. Okay, Alcoholics Anonymous probably does better than any other group I've ever seen or observed at identifying what patterns are present in a person that leads them down the path of addiction. And in my opinion, I think AA sometimes goes too far and doesn't allow their members to count the positives and doesn't allow their members to you know, take off the mantle of, you know, the broken, selfish, degenerate addict. I mean, I think some people sit in that too deeply in AA. But in general, AA does a pretty great job of identifying that your best decisions got you right where you were at the bottom. Okay. And what do they call that? They call it stinking thinking. And stinking thinking is the pattern of thought, the patterns of thought that we get caught in that do not serve us. They're not true. Maybe they worked in a dysfunctional environment. We had to come up with a way to interpret a dysfunctional environment. But typically, friends, we were doing that with brains that were about thinking wise, you know, three years old to 20 years old. That's not a completely formed brain. So, so many of the ways we think and the assumptions we make were created during childhood when you didn't have a fully formed rational brain. So I hope a light just went off. If you've got stinking thinking, and if you're a human being, you do. If you've got stinking thinking, if you've got patterns of thought that are not serving you, they're just making you miserable, they're making you depressed, they're making you anxious, those patterns of thought were likely developed during childhood. You didn't have a fully formed brain yet. So I don't know about you, but that tells me that maybe we should re-examine them. (laughs) Maybe we should look at patterns of thought that were developed before our brain was. Okay, that's stinking thinking. 
Now, the reason why I'm doing this podcast today is because this is a universal problem. Human beings, since human beings have been recording our thoughts, have been recording thought patterns that are not healthy, they're not rational, they're not connected to reality. Our tendency is to form thoughts and thought patterns that are not connected to reality. Some of us are far more rational than others, some of us are more emotional. But for all of us, I've never met a client whether he was left-brained or she was right-brained, artistic, cerebral. I've never met a client who does not engage in stinking thinking, okay? And I'm going to put some more theoretical and technical language on this today. But it's universal. And it's driving a lot of the chaos that we're in right now as a culture, as a country, in our communities, in our families. We're just rife. We're filled with what I call stinking thinking, Okay. So why am I addressing this in this way? Well, because your thinking is actually quite important. It's actually what's directing your life. Your patterns of thought are driving your decisions. So the stack of mental processes that form the basis for everything you are and everything you choose in your life goes like this, okay? At the very bottom of the stack is what you believe. And what you believe forms the basis for what you think. Your thoughts will be congruent with your beliefs. And then what you think drives what you perceive. And what is a perception? It's what you believe you see. It's what you're seeing. It's what your brain is telling you that you're seeing. So beliefs are on the bottom layer. Then thoughts. Then perceptions. Perception drives emotion. And emotion is how you're experiencing your life. This is a really important layer we're talking about. The beliefs layer I cover in a podcast called Core Beliefs. And I'm sure I'll circle around to it in some shape or form again. But it's super important to us that we think well, that our mental processes of thinking are sound. So today we're going to examine a group of problematic ways of thinking and put our own thoughts to the test, okay? What we're going to look at are called cognitive distortions. And this is mostly the work of Aaron Beck. And if you've ever studied or done cognitive behavioral therapy, this is what you were working with. So I'm going to break these down today because it's so important that we take a step back and examine how we think, the validity of our thoughts, are they connected and congruent with reality? Are they rational? Which is, I'm repeating myself, same thing. Okay, and then how to change them. Now there's two problematic layers of stinking thinking. Two problematic layers. The first is the pattern of thought itself is irrational. It doesn't make sense. It won't hold up to logic. Now, why is that important for mental health? Because in order to be mentally sound, your thoughts need to be connected to reality. You know, if somebody comes into my office and says, I truly believe that I am Superman and I can fly, I might be thinking, okay. You know, in today's culture, I'm probably just expected to just, you know, confirm and affirm that stance. Well, if you believe you're Superman, you must be Superman. Uh, No, that's irrational. That's not who you are and you cannot fly. Both of those thoughts are irrational. But what's important is that they're coming from somewhere. They're emerging from the psyche in a place that really needs or wants to believe that you're Superman. So that's where the therapeutic work is. But my therapeutic job is not to just confirm and affirm every single thing a client says about themselves if what they say is irrational. So that's the first problem. The first problem is that these thoughts are irrational. They do not make sense. They do not cohere to reality, won't hold up to logic. The second problem is these thought patterns are ingrained. 
They're ingrained in me and they're ingrained in you. They are habitual. It's a habit. And what does that mean? It means it gets applied to everything. No matter what situation you're in, you're going to be thinking this way about universal subjects, a vast array of things that come up in your life. You're going to apply this lens and it's going to form your reality. And that reality may not at all be congruent with actual reality. It's just the reality you choose to live in because of how you think. Now think about it this way. Imagine if you learned math incorrectly. Imagine if you learned that two plus two equals five. Now, of course, we all know that two plus two equals four. But imagine if you learned that two plus two equals five from the beginning. Imagine how off all of your math would be for the rest of your life. You know, if you measured a room for furniture, if you needed to balance your checking account, all of the tasks in life that require mathematical knowledge. Can't believe I'm saying this. I was like the queen of I'm never going to use this. I hated math. Oh, my God, I hated math. I was just bad at it. Um, I think I had good teachers, though, mostly, but I was really bad at it. Anyway, I digress. Imagine if you learned two plus two equals five, it would throw off everything, right? The foundation of what you were taught was problematic. And now all of your math is problematic. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about cognitive distortions. The way that we're thinking is flawed. So it gets applied to all of these situations in life. And now our outcomes and our perceptions, they're all flawed. The way we're seeing the world is actually flawed. It's not congruent with reality. The second part, again, is that it's ingrained. We're so used to thinking this way that we've structured our lives around false information and irrational thought. So it's not just what we think that can be problematic. It's how we think. Because how we think is what's grounding us in reality and therefore mental soundness. You know, I grew up in a very fundamentalist sect of Christian Christianity, the Christian church, and it was called Seventh-day Adventism. And I'm not knocking Seventh-day Adventism. I actually learned really, really beautiful spiritual discipline from that church. I learned a lot of reverence and awe for the greatness and the, you know, vastness of God. I appreciate all of that. But there's a but. When I was growing up, the system of Adventism, at least the church I was raised in, I don't know about other Adventist churches, but the church that I was raised in was rigidly dogmatic about the doctrine, okay? In Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, you follow the Sabbath, which means we did not work or go out or do anything else except just acknowledge the Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, Um, They follow basically a Jewish diet, so no pork, no shellfish. Um, It's a kosher diet. Um, You could not wear pants to church. Now, again, this might have changed. I'm talking about my childhood. I was, this was like the 80s and the 90s. Um, We had to wear skirts, no makeup. And these things were rigidly adhered to and rigidly taught. These weren't suggestions. It wasn't like, well, it would be healthier if you didn't eat pork. It was like, no, it's a sin. So I grew up with this really, really rigid mindset about what was right and wrong. Then as I got older, I decided, you know, the Adventist faith is not really feeling like where my spirituality is going to blossom and grow. So I decided to leave that and I went other places and had other experiences. But I remember realizing maybe five, six, seven years after I left the Adventist church that the thinking 
was still in me. And by that, I mean, at this time in my life, I'm eating shrimp, I'm eating pork, I'm not following kosher diets, and I'm certainly not observing the Sabbath at this point in my life. But what I am doing is I'm still thinking dogmatically. I'm still seeing the world and spirituality as right or wrong, the right path, the wrong path. I'm still thinking dualistically, and I'm going to get into that today. All or nothing thinking is what that's called. So what I believed had changed, but how I believed hadn't. What I thought had changed, but how I thought hadn't. So I just moved into another situation in life where I was like, oh, so I got the wrong set of right and wrongs. Now I'm going to move over here and adopt a whole new set of right and wrongs and still have no grace and no nuance for anything. Do you see what I mean? The dogma had not changed. So what we're going to start identifying today is not just what you think, but how you think. We're going to talk through 10 cognitive distortions associated, again, with a famous and effective therapeutic model called cognitive behavioral therapy. And the goal of cognitive behavioral therapy is to unpack these distorted ways of thinking, which lead to irrational behaviors, reactive behaviors, okay, and reset them with rational thought. All right, let's dive in. All or nothing thinking is the first one. This is also known as black and white thinking. We see the world in absolutes, okay, diametrically opposed positions. Things are good or bad. I'm a success or I'm a failure. I'm a good mom or I'm a bad mom. I'm a good husband or I'm a bad husband. Everything or nothing, okay? Now, I remember when I was in my 20s, I saw a cognitive behavioral therapist in New York named Jonathan Alpert. And he was working with me through this cognitive distortion. And I remember he said, you know, Vanessa, if I give you two cans of paint, I'll never forget this. If I give you two cans of paint, one black and one white, how can you paint the room? There's four walls in the room. How can you paint the room? So I think, okay, you can do all black, all white, black, white, black, white, black, black, white, white, black, 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 white, 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 black. And maybe some of you out there are thinking, well, you could also blah, blah, blah. But I came up with about six options, right? He's like, okay, so pretty limited. And I said, yes. And he said, what if I tell you, you can mix the paint? It was just one of those moments, like mind-blowing moments. And I thought, oh, that's the difference. Because again, I was working out of this dogma. This was this time in my life where I was working out of that dogmatic black and white way of thinking and seeing things. And I remember that mind-blowing moment of just, wow, I... I have not given myself or the world enough options, okay? So that's a good example of how black and white thinking manifests itself. The options that you give yourself when you're in absolute thinking, black and white thinking, are so limited. You're either good or you're bad. You're a success or you're a failure. You're the greatest person in the world or you're a piece of crap. None of these things are true. We hold successes and failures. We hold positive and negative traits, right? There's always room for mixing the paint. We are all shades of gray. No one that's listening to this podcast is an absolute anything. You're not an absolute worthless piece of you know what, nor are you a glowing angel of a human being at all times. If you think you are, please see a therapist for narcissism, right? That's just not how we think. And most most of us think far too negatively of ourselves, but it comes down to this black and white thinking and it produces shame, because if I'm good, if I see myself as good, a success, you know, I'm on top of the world, then I'm terrified of dropping a level. I'm terrified of making a mistake because I can't lose this reputation I have in my own mind of being good. 
But then if I'm bad, that's shameful because I don't believe I'll ever be good. I'm just stuck on the lower end of life. So this is highly correlated with extreme personality styles. When I'm talking to someone who's presenting with depression, I'm almost always thinking in my head, we've got to get to the black and white thinking. Because if they're depressed, they're typically seeing themselves as all bad. Life is all bad. Okay. And if I'm working with a narcissistic individual, they're going to tend to see themselves as better than others. Make sense? When we see others this way, We've been talking about how we see ourselves. When we see others this way through the all or nothing thinking, it's called splitting. I split you into either good or bad. You're either an angel or a devil. You're either the best person I've ever met or you're a piece of crap. Get out of my sight. Okay. Very, very problematic for relationships. In order to have relationship, we have to be able to hold both. There's no room in that kind of thinking for our humanity, the idea that we can be both broken, beautiful. When people are in black or white thinking, all or nothing thinking, there's no reason or room for forgiveness because if someone is all bad, then they're just a failure. Why bother? And then if someone is all good and we see them as this like angelic person on a pedestal, you know, they don't need forgiveness because they're perfect. So all of our humanity goes out the window. Why is it irrational? Because it leaves out the whole spectrum of reality. Very little in our lives exist in that kind of an extreme. Very little. I might say every single blessed sunset over the desert is beautiful. I, I might say that, but what if there are clouds? I mean, it does rain periodically in the desert. Maybe those sunsets aren't beautiful. Do you see what I mean? Every baby is perfect. I guess we could say that. We, every baby is born perfect. Well, Vanessa, what about birth defects? Or, you know, what? well... Okay, to that mother, the baby's perfect, or maybe not. See, it, there's nuance. To, to, to one mother, my baby is perfect, even though it was born with some kind of special need or, you know, a birth defect. And then to another mother, no, my baby isn't perfect, but my baby is still beautiful. Do you see? Nothing exists in this black or white. Now, if you are of a certain belief system, if you're a faith tradition, you might say that the only thing that exists in, per- in perfection is God. Okay. Yeah. In that belief system, that is true. I subscribe to that. I do believe in God, and I do believe that God in God's essence is perfect. But aside from that, give it room. (laughs) Give it room to be a mess. Give it room to be broken. Okay. Cognitive distortion number two, overgeneralization. And I actually prefer the term globalization. What is globalization? It means that I take one thing that happened one time and I globalize it and I say that it's going to happen every time in all situations. One occurrence becomes the rule. Okay, examples of that. One woman hurt me, so all women are bad and can't be trusted. One cop, one police officer who behaved badly means all cops are bad, can't be trusted. One dishonest lawyer means all lawyers are untrustworthy pieces of you know what. Okay, that's globalization. It means when we take one occurrence and we make it true of all people at all times. This is hugely problematic for our thinking. Why? Because it leaves out exceptions and variety. Very few. Again, you can't really say this about reality. You, I could argue you if you said, well, no, this is true, Vanessa. This one thing is always true at all times. No, it's not. I guarantee you it's not. There are good lawyers, honest lawyers. There are moral, fair, 
justice-providing police officers. Not all women are terrible and can't be trusted, right? Not all men are abusive, violent jerks. This is globalization. It's highly correlated with post-traumatic stress disorder. Because this traumatic thing happened one time, I'm afraid it's going to happen all the time in all situations. And it comes from a mind that needs to feel safe. We just want to feel safe. And when a bad thing happens, a traumatic thing, a dangerous thing, a harmful thing happens, we then move into a place where we believe, well, that could and probably will happen at any time. And that's globalization. Why is it irrational? Because the likelihood that the same terrible things happening outside of the environment in which they occur originally is actually quite slim. It's actually quite slim. Most cops are honorable. Now, are they flawed human beings? Of course. So are you. So so am I. A great book on this, by the way, is called The Coddling of the American Mind. The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Great book. I read it uh, this summer about this very thing, how cognitive distortions have made their way into society, onto college campuses, and how we've got an entire generation of people, mostly 18 to about 25 right now, who are thinking with these cognitive distortions, thinking that they are thinking the right way. And it's hugely problematic. We have to think rationally. Okay. Number three, the mental filter. Mental filtering means we focus on one small event and filter out everything else. What does that mean? It means we have a couple and one partner in the couple is scrubbing the floors and cleaning the house and then the other partner is sitting on the couch watching TV, okay? And one partner says to the other, you know, you never help around the house. There it is. Huge statement. You never help around the house. And the person sitting on the couch says, wait a second, I washed the dishes this morning and I cleaned out the garage. So the complaining partner has filtered out, this is the mental filter, filtered out all of the positive, helpful things that the other person did. Okay? And we do this with ourselves. And I'm going to talk a lot about this because a lot of these distortions kind of layer on top of each other. We filter out the good things we do and we focus on the bad. Okay? Works the other way too. Sometimes we choose someone who has a pretty dangerous history. Maybe we've chosen a partner who has a history of being violent. And a friend says to us, you know, this person has a history of being violent with their partners. What are you doing? Aren't you worried about that? Well, he's just been so sweet to me since our last fight. That's a mental filter. Okay, I'm filtering out all the times this person was threatening, maybe even violent. I'm filtering out reality For the one exception, that's the mental filter, okay? We could be filtering out a history, a pattern, in order to see what we want to see. Why do we do this? A lot of this comes down to having a feeling of control. Life is a lot to take in, and reality is a lot to take in. And when it's too much to take in, we filter out the positive, or we filter out the negative, and we filter everything down to small bites, which are easier to swallow and easier for us to feel like we're in control, but it's not the whole picture. And that's why it's not rational. In order to be in rational thought, we've got to be seeing the whole picture. We do this so we can stay in denial. Denial is easier, but it's not rational. Okay. Discounting the positive. Number four, discounting the positive means we're rejecting the good that has either happened to us that we have done or that others have done. 
It's a little bit like the mental filter, but the filter can work both ways. You can filter out the positive and the negative. When we're discounting the positive, we're only filtering out the positive. So what does that mean? It means I had a client. I'm going to tell this story a couple times in a couple different ways because there were a couple of cognitive distortions going on. But I had a client who is always earlier on time for sessions, always. I can count on this guy. I I can hear the door open and close in my waiting area while I'm in session. And he might be 5, 10, even 15 minutes early for his session. One day he walked in and he was three minutes late. I remember I looked at my clock because it's not like him. And it was, you know, 203 or whatever it was, 303, whenever the session was supposed to start. And he profusely apologized and went on and on and on about what a bad person he was. And he can't believe that he kept me waiting for three minutes. This is a perfect example of discounting the positive. And I said, you know, let's not forget that you're always on time. You're always early. One time you're three minutes late. It's not even that late. It's not, it's kind of a grace period, right? Five minutes is a grace period. You're three minutes late. It's not that big of a deal. And you're always on time. And it was like a light bulb moment for him. He's kind of like, huh, you're right. Why am I focusing on the one time I did wrong? I said, I don't know. Why are you? And that's where the, the therapy session went. Okay. So that's discounting the positive in ourselves. But we can discount the positive in other people. You know, if somebody comes in and says, you know, my husband never lifts a finger to help me. It's a terrible marriage. Notice that sentence. My husband never lifts a finger to help me. But is that true? When has your, your husband been helpful? Can you focus on that? Can you at least acknowledge it? Because if we focus on the negative and discount the positive, what do you think our mindset is going to be? Well, there it is. I have a terrible marriage. You want to balance your marriage. You want to come back into gratitude. You have to count the positive, not discount the positive. When we discount the positives about ourselves, we might say something like, I'm a failure. I never do anything good enough. Again, notice the big statement. I never, he never, she never. Well, is that true? And this is a big question in cognitive behavioral therapy. Is that true? Have you never done anything well? Have you always failed at every single thing you've tried to do? Well, yeah, every, okay, wait, you tried to bake a batch of cookies and you failed at it? Well, no, I mean, okay, you tried to buy a new car and you failed at it. You've been riding around your life on a bicycle. Well, no, I have a new car. Okay, so there are successes. Let's build on those. And then the mindset starts to shift. That's discounting the positive. Why is it irrational? Because the positive is happening. It's happening. You know, I recently worked with a client in recovery. And there was a real perception of the self. I'm so selfish. You know, I can't give 100% to relationships because I have to give to myself. And I'm so selfish and I'm so selfish. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, he's really discounting the positive. What you are doing at this point in your life is setting up appropriate boundaries so that you can focus on your recovery. That's not selfish. That's actually selfless. You're giving people a fair and balanced view of yourself and you're giving them realistic expectations so they know what to expect in relationship. That's fair. That's good. And you sort of see that light bulb go off like, oh yeah, huh. That's discounting the positive. Okay, five, jumping to conclusions. Jumping to conclusions, and I am guilty of this myself. This is probably this and one other one we'll get to is my choice cognitive distortion. It's when we think we know the facts before the facts are known or a situation plays out. So jumping to conclusions takes two forms, mind reading and fortune telling. Okay, fortune telling is also known as future casting. So let's talk about mind reading. Mind reading is we think we know what others are thinking. 
So we attend a party and so-and-so doesn't greet us and they don't talk to us all night. And we think to ourselves, man, they must really hate me. That's mind reading. You don't know that. You cannot read someone else's mind, right? So we're taking our cues from the environment and we're probably a bit hypervigilant about how people are responding to us or how they're looking at us or how they're talking to us. And we are jumping to conclusions like that. It happens really fast. This person must be thinking blank. I didn't get that job. It must be because they don't think I'm attractive or it must be because they think my resume is stupid. Actually, unless or until you know why you didn't get a job, you don't know. It could be any number of reasons why you didn't get a job. Okay, that's mind reading. And we do it all the time. Why do we do it? Because we need to feel like we're in control of our environment. We need to set ourselves up so that we're not getting hurt, so that we know why. We, we can't bear to say, I don't know why this is happening. It's very difficult for us to say, I'm afraid, but I don't know what's happening. So we jump to a conclusion. Well, this must be what's happening. This is what someone else is thinking. Okay, fortune telling. Fortune telling is future casting. It's the crystal ball approach to life. We know what's going to happen. And let me tell you folks that if you are fortune telling, your prediction of what's going to happen is almost always negative. Oh, I can't go for that job. They'll never have me. How do you know? I can't get out there in the dating world. Nobody wants to date me. I'm overweight. I'm ugly. I'm a loser. See, this is all or nothing thinking. So cognitive distortions, like I said, they layer on top of one another. This is stinking thinking. But how do you know? Well, I'll never find a husband. I'll never find a wife. How do you know? You're future casting. You don't have a crystal ball. You have absolutely no way of knowing that. It's in the future. Have you tried? Or is this an assumption? Jumping to conclusions is all about making assumptions. What's the opposite of jumping to conclusions? Patiently learning, curiosity, asking questions, being willing to live it out, to find it out. Okay, six, magnification. Magnification means we're magnifying, we're making negative qualities huge while discounting or minimizing positive traits. It means we're focusing in on what we do wrong and we all have flaws. We all have negative traits and we're forming our entire concept of ourselves, our whole concept of our identity around flaws or negative traits. Or we're making the negatives of a situation huge, enormous, magnifying them while minimizing or discounting the positive gains or opportunities. It's a lens. We focus on and amplify. So it's not just discounting the positive. It's now amplifying the negative. The negative aspect of ourselves or a situation becomes enormous. What does this lead to? It's catastrophic thinking. Catastrophic thinking. And we get into catastrophizing. Well, you know, I have a tendency to do this. And if I do this, then what if my partner leaves me? Okay, hang on. We just went down a hill really fast, right? And here's the thing, friends. We get so ingrained in these ways of thinking. Remember that there's two problems here. Number one, they're irrational. Number two, they're habitual. We get so ingrained in thinking this way that we, we think we're right. The mind is such a problematic, tricky place. You know, the other day I was scrolling through Instagram and I follow this account, Doc Amen, and it's Daniel Amen who started the Amen Clinics, and he's just amazing. I love this guy. He's a psychiatrist. Um, he's really a neuroscientist at heart, and he's all about brain health and holistic brain health and 
eating and having a lifestyle that supports the health of your brain. And he wrote this the other day, and I put it on my own story. Your thoughts lie. They lie a lot. And when you operate on believing every thought you have to be true, then you act as if they are. You start believing the lies you are feeding yourself. I'm not saying you need to blindly think positive thoughts. I want you to start engaging in rational and accurate thinking. Don't believe every self-critical or negative thought you have. Challenge the thought by asking yourself if the thought is true. Then try to find evidence that the opposite of that thought is more true. Daniel Amen, without naming it, is literally walking through the entire process of cognitive behavioral therapy. We go to a thought and we say, hang on, is this true? So magnification, coming back to that. We're looking at one trait we have and we're making it enormous in our minds, okay? So the client who arrives three minutes late to session, that was discounting the positive. That moment, the cognitive distortion was discounting the positive. But he was also doing some magnifying. He was magnifying this moment and trying to make it true that he was this inconsiderate, selfish person who never takes other people into account. And I thought, hang on, that is not my experience of you at all. I find you to be empathic, considerate. You know, he has children. If one of them calls during session, hang on, Vanessa, I need to take this call. That's not a selfish person. That's a person who's available, right? So we take one negative moment in our lives and we make it proof that we're not a good person. So how do you work through this? Well, the first thing you have to do is identify the cognitive distortion, which in this case is magnification. And then we explored his fear of being imperfect and the rejection and the judgment he fears if and when his flaws are known. That apology was profuse, this profuse apology. It was serving to minimize the damage. He was trying to do damage control so that I wouldn't judge him because he thought I was going to magnify that flaw like he does. And that's what we do when we're in stinking thinking, when we're in this cognitive distorted way of thinking. We think other people think this way about us. Oh, well, this flaw is enormous in my mind. It's sort of like Cyrano de Bergerac, right? He's got this huge nose and he thinks that that's all people see. So he's got this poetic, beautiful way of writing, and he's got this heart that stretches on for miles and miles and miles, but all he can see is his nose. All he can see is the flaw. That's magnification. And we all have that propensity inside of us to take this one element of ourselves. You know, sometimes people with a physical problem going on, they assume that that's all people see about them. No, that's all you see. You have magnified this into the defining quality about your life. But there's 10 million other things about you that are probably infinitely more interesting than the one flaw you focus on and make it your entire identity. So we live life in avoidance of mistakes. We live life in a pattern of perfectionism. Why? Because we can't let people see the flaw because the flaw is so big. Maybe it's a physical flaw, a birth defect, a health issue. Maybe we're convinced that that's all people look at when they see us. Or it's an emotional problem, an emotional feeling we have about ourselves. You know, I'm socially awkward. And so we avoid social situations because that's all we are. Forget it that we're brilliant, interesting, have a dry sense of humor. But we go through some social anxiety. So we avoid all social situations because I can't let people see this part of me. 
you're magnifying the flaw. Our flaws are not, in fact, larger than our positive traits. They're only larger in our own eyes. And that's why it's irrational, because it's not keeping with reality. You've magnified something. You've made it this huge, 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 ugly mole, you know, bleeding pus coming out of your face. And nobody else sees it that way. It's only you. Okay. Emotional reasoning. Here's the big one. Here's the big one. Friends, if you are listening to this podcast and you are between the ages of 18 and 35, I want you to really, really tune in right now. Okay. Not that this doesn't happen outside of that age range. It does. But your generation specifically has been taught to emotionally reason and it's a problem. And I'm convinced that this is part of the reason why anxiety and depression rates are spiking. Let's get into this. Okay. Emotional reasoning. It means basically, and I'm going to unpack this, you're judging yourself or your circumstances based on how you feel about them. That's as simple as it is. That is emotional reasoning. I feel, therefore, it is. And it's an assumption that because I'm experiencing a negative emotion, it must be an accurate reflection of a negative reality. Okay? This is hugely problematic. Why? Because your feelings are based on your perceptions, not reality. How you perceive something is how you feel about it. What's the example? I've told this story 10 times on this podcast. I'm in a dark room. You could probably say it with me at this point. I'm in a dark room and I'm asleep and I wake up and I look in the corner. Oh my gosh, there's someone crouching in my corner. There's somebody in the room. They're going to kill me. They broke into the house. Oh my gosh, I'm terrified. And my pupils dilate and the hair stands up on the back of my neck and I'm frozen in fear and I'm looking for something I can use to attack this person. And I reach over and I turn on my light, my lamp right by my bedside. Oh my gosh, it was just my backpack. Okay. Friends, the fear was real. You felt it. You probably felt it as I was describing this, right? My body did. I got all tense while I'm telling the story. That's how fluid emotions are. You could perceive something as danger and you are dead wrong. I had a situation. This is bizarre. To this day, this is bizarre to me, but I'm sure I know I've done things that are just as bizarre and judgmental. But a friend of mine has a friend. And it's, I'm one of her closest friends and this person is one of her closest friends. And there's been strife for years because the first time I met this person, they perceived, okay, that I was greeting everyone with a hug, but I didn't hug her. Now, I'm not someone who's typically going to hug someone I don't know. That was the day I had met her. A hug for me is familiarity, When I meet someone, I might shake their hand. I might wave. If they lean in for a hug, I'll give a hug. But it's not necessarily something I initiate if I don't know you. It's just not how I greet people normally. Uh, Unless it's, you know, a a daughter, a family member of somebody. But, you know, it depends. You know what I'm saying? It just depends on the situation. In that moment, I didn't hug her. She, for years, for years, felt rejected by me and decided that I was a bad person. To this day, there is weird juju. I have talked about this. I have like, what did I do to this person? Finally, the truth came out. And my friend said to me, Vanessa, I am embarrassed for her to tell you this. But that first time you met her, you hugged so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and and you didn't hug her. And forever, she has had this emotionally reasoned position that I am a cold, mean person. 
Since then, I mean, honestly, if I'm being honest, I have worked hard. I have overworked. I have overfunctioned to try and like prove to her, like, I'm not a cold person. I just didn't know you. She is still standoffish. Whatever. That's her journey. But that's, that's an example of emotional reasoning. She doesn't know me. She didn't talk to me. She didn't ask me, hey, you hugged everybody else. And granted, that might have been weird in and of itself. But she didn't just say like, huh, I don't know. She emotionally reasoned that because she felt rejected, I am a rejecting person. That's an example of emotional reasoning. Now, I said I'm going to tell you what a couple of my favorite cognitive distortions are. This is actually one that I go to a lot because I'm emotional. I've got strong emotions. I'm a four on the Enneagram. And if you're a four on the Enneagram, you have got to know that your tendency is going to be to get into emotional reasoning, which is I feel, therefore it is. Okay, it means you're believing your feelings. Your feelings are facts. Your feelings are reflections of reality. And I'm here to tell you, they're not. They're not. They are based on perceptions and your perceptions, just like the stranger in the corner is a backpack, could be wrong. What's an example? I feel worthless. Therefore, I am worthless. I feel hurt and ousted. Therefore, so-and-so has rejected me. I feel uncomfortable around so-and-so. Therefore, they are a bad person. So what do we do with our feelings? Well, feelings should be acknowledged, but not always believed. How do we stop doing this? And I'll say a little bit more about this later, but maybe I'll just get into it now. Name the feeling. What are you feeling? Are you afraid? Are you hurt? Are you angry? Are you confused? Or do you feel rejected? Okay, what is the truth? Well, the truth is I don't know what that person intended, right? Because again, they, they layer on top of each other. If I'm emotionally reasoning, I'm probably getting into some mind reading, If I know what I feel, I can't therefore assume what somebody else's motive was. Why is it irrational? Because emotions are based on perceptions and perceptions are not always congruent with reality. We have to stay in reality. That means feel what you feel, but know that reality may be something completely different. Eight, should statements. What I should be doing, who I should be in my life, where I should be in my life. Why are these distorted? Why is this stinking thinking? Because it's self-defeating. We're holding ourselves to standards of perfection instead of embracing who we are. This is layered on all or nothing thinking. This is good. This is bad. So I should be the good. I should be the success, not the failure. Okay, so they go hand in hand. When we're in all or nothing thinking, we're going to be telling ourselves we should be on the good side of all or nothing thinking. And we have a phrase in therapy, and I didn't coin this. I can't take credit for it. But, you know, we say to our clients sometimes, you know, you're shooting all over yourself. <laughs> and we do this. When we fall short, instead of just accepting, look, I'm human. I'm in a process of growth. It's, you know, one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back. That's just how growth happens. It's not a straight line. It's a twisty, twirly maze sometimes. Okay. When we're in should statements, I should be this, we're in negative self-talk. And what does that mean? It means we're layering on discounting the positive. We're magnifying the negative. We're getting into all kinds of distorted thinking when we're shoulding ourselves. And it creates anxiety. I'm not good enough. And that leads to depression. I'm not where I should be. My life isn't what it should be. Well, who said it should be? Because we've got to unpack all these assumptions you're making about who you're supposed to be. What happens if you accept yourself where you are right now? Well, a lot of that depression lifts if you can accept yourself and love yourself where and who you are right now. 
And why is it irrational? Because perfection is not an attainable standard. And it discounts the whole process. The process of growth is messy. We're striving for an outcome. This is who I should be instead of being in the process. And nothing in life is accomplished by being in an outcome. You have to engage the process. The process is I'm exactly where I should be. I'm at this step of my journey. All right, nine, labeling. Big one, big, big, big today. Tons of labels. Everybody's got 27 labels in front of their name. What is labeling? It means we make a judgment about ourselves or someone else wholesale instead of separating out behavior from who someone is or what they do as an individual. Okay, it means I take one thing that one person does or I take one thing that I do and I make this the identity of myself or someone else instead of saying this is what I've done, but that may not be who I am. Okay, now this is problematic. Why? Because once we see ourselves or someone else as a label and not a human, we dehumanize them. And that is not congruent with reality. You cannot dehumanize someone who's a human. Does that even need to be further explained? They're a human. They're a human being. That's a flesh and blood person with a cardiovascular system, breath in their lungs, hair on their head or not. But they're a human, okay? For you to label them is to dehumanize them. For you to label yourself is to dehumanize yourself, but it's problematic because you're a human, okay? That's like calling a dog a cat. It's not a cat. It's a dog, So we have to stay with reality and being in reality means people are human beings. And what does that mean? It means people are messy. There are a whole lot of things. You're a whole lot of things. When we're self-labeling, we say things like, I'm a failure. I'm fat. I'm an idiot. I'm selfish. What does it do? It creates a tunnel vision of negativity. And that's all I am. Now, we can label ourselves around a social persona. I'm an activist. What's the problem with putting labels on ourselves? I'm a freedom fighter, whatever it is. We have these labels. I'm so tired of them. What's the problem? It means you can't be anything else. That's the problem. That's why it's not congruent with reality because it's too limiting Maybe I deeply care about this social issue, but I'm not an activist. It's not going to be how I express my care and concern. Okay, good on you. You don't need to hold a label to have worth. Nor can you destroy another person's worth by labeling them. You can try, but you can't. That person is still worthy of dignity, kindness, respect, and love. Whether or not you choose to give it, that's on you. When you label yourself, you are still worthy of dignity, kindness, respect, honor, and love. But you're not giving it to yourself if you're labeling yourself negatively. What do we do when we label others? What a narcissist. He's an addict. She's a jerk. You know, I was on Facebook a while ago, and there's a Facebook group that I'm a part of that's like, it's therapists, and it's all like Middle Tennessee therapists. And this woman got on there, young girl, just graduated from graduate school. And she was like, hey, I want to start, it was during COVID, I want to start a female processing group just to talk about how we're you know, processing COVID as therapists, as clinicians. And somebody jumped in and said, is your group open to trans women? And I watched this whole thing, you know, play out. And I thought, oh, this might get a little sticky because I don't know either. I know one person pretty well, but I don't know the other person pretty well. And I don't know what their stance is on some of this stuff. And she said, "Uh, no, I was thinking of just making it, you know, 
cisgendered or however she put it. And I'm just watching this and I think, okay, this is about to explode. And then sure enough, this one participant in the exchange said, you're a TERF, which is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. It's a label. And that became the whole tone of the conversation. And I watched this whole exchange go from like a well-meaning invitation, like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Let me know if you'd like to be part of it. I'm trying to support women. Maybe she comes from a worldview where she's grappling with our trans women, women. I mean, I don't know. I don't know both of these people that well, but I watched this label get put on this discussion and the whole tone of the exchange shifted. Once a label got introduced. Now, were there other ways to bring that up? Yeah. Maybe she could have said, you know, I would encourage you to have some conversations with trans women. I know a lot of trans women in this community who would love to be part of this group. I'd be happy to hook you up with some of them on Facebook. That's helpful. That's okay. Well, let's broaden our horizons. Let's think through this. Let's lead with compassion. Let's lead with inclusion. I have no problem with that approach as a therapist. But as soon as that label went in, oh, you're a turf. I thought, my goodness, is this helpful? The girl didn't even know what it was. I wound up getting into a private chat with her on Messenger and she's like, what's a turf? I'm like, oh God, okay, here we go. But that label was not helpful. And it zeroed in on her in a negative light when all she was trying to do was something positive. So right now we're, you know, discounting the positive. We're magnifying the negative and now we're labeling and it was hugely problematic and it led to this huge rift in the group and it was just, it was unnecessary. All that needed to happen was, well, let's talk about that. Let's engage that. Can I engage that with you? Is that something you're willing to be open to? Maybe including trans women in this group? So that's labeling. That's why it's problematic because it leaves no room for redemption. Once you've got a label slapped on you by yourself or somebody else, you can't be anything else. Okay, last, personalization and blame. Personalization and blame are two different ways of doing the same thing. It's where you put responsibility and where you put fault. If you personalize, you put it all on yourself. If you blame, you place all responsibility on someone else. So M. Scott Peck wrote The Road Less Traveled. And he said, there's two different kinds of people I work with in therapy. Personality disordered and character disordered. Personality disordered people blame everybody else. Well, if so-and-so would just get off her butt, we'd have a better work environment. If my wife would just do this, I'd have a better marriage. If my kids would show more respect, we'd, ha we'd have a happier family. Okay, everything is everybody else's problem. That's personality disordered. Character disordered people are the people who say, you know, it's all my fault. If I would just do this, things would get better. If I would just, you know, cook better meals, if I would, I'd be healthier, blah, 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 whatever. They take all the responsibility on themselves, okay? And he said, only one person can be helped in therapy. Which one do you think it is? It's the character disordered person. Why? Because they're willing to change themselves. The personality disordered person sees everybody else as the problem. The character dis disordered person, there's still a cognitive distortion going on, which is personalization. Everything is my fault. That is also not true. But they have more hope because they're willing to see their own part in the cycle. Okay? Personalization. My child is struggling and therefore it's all my fault and I'm a bad parent. Instead of considering the host of factors that are present that influence a child's behavior. Well, I got laid off and it's because I'm a worthless, replaceable piece of scum. I mean, I must have just been doing a crappy job. Well, maybe it's more complex than that. Maybe the company had to make some really tough choices 
and other really talented, great people got laid off. And it wasn't because of your talent. It's just because of income. It's because of profit loss. Okay. It could be a lot of things, but when we personalize, we eliminate all of those other factors and we only look at our own fault. We do the same thing when we blame, but we focus on somebody else. We eliminate all of the other factors, all of the other ways that we could be contributing to the problem, to the cycle, and it's their fault. You know, recently I had a conflict with Jared about something and I don't remember what it was about, but I remember I was blaming him at first. And then I thought, wait a second, Vanessa, you could have done a much better job of how you brought that up. You know, I should have done this this way, though. I could have done better here. I could have brought this to you at a time where you weren't as stressed or you weren't as tired. It was something like that. And then he did the same thing. You know, I I could have done this better. And we were both able to see our part in that cycle. And it was a lovely moment where blame. I caught myself in that cognitive distortion and thought, wait a second, I've got a, I've got a part in this. I can't blame him for that. There's there was a place for me to have done better here. And then we both took responsibility for ourselves. So that was a nice moment where we moved out. I moved. (laughs) He wasn't in it. I moved out of a cognitive distortion and into what? More rational thinking. And that's the goal is to think rationally. That's what Daniel Amen was talking about. Think rationally. Is it true? Are there exceptions? Is there another way I could be thinking about this that's closer to reality? So how do we stop cognitive distortions. Well, the first thing you do is thought stopping. Two mornings ago, I got, no, it was yesterday morning. It was yesterday morning. I got caught up in some emotional reasoning where I thought that a negative feeling I had must have meant a negative motive in somebody else. And I literally, friends, this is what I did in my head yesterday morning. I went, cut it out, Vanessa. That's what I said to myself in my head. Cut it out, Vanessa. That's it. And the thought stopped and I went on to whatever I was doing. I think I was making a cup of coffee and I moved on. But my thoughts can get carried away. Your thoughts can get carried away. We've got to learn to stop the thought and it's tracked. So we've got to know what is my preferred way of stinking thinking? What cognitive distortion do I tend to go to more than others? When you're in all or nothing thinking, begin to look at the other reasonable options you haven't considered yet. You've narrowed down your mental choices too far to one or two things. I'm either good or bad, success or failure, blah, blah, blah. Think of three more, okay? If you're in globalization, you've been acting like one thing that happened in one time and place means that it will always happen in every time and place. Now, I want you to allow yourself to examine the exceptions to the rule you've established in your mind. Think rationally. What is the likelihood of this happening again? Do I need to be on high alert? Mental filters, You need to find the exceptions. You've been filtering out the good in favor of the bad. I want you to ask yourself, where is the good? This is for people who are prone to negative thinking. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? You know, what if so-and-so does this? This is the mental filter of filtering out the good. I want you to ask yourself, where is the good? If you've been discounting the positive, you've ignored and chosen not to acknowledge the good that you do. Now I want you to start acknowledging both the positive and negative aspects of yourself Okay, you don't have to discount the negative. You can still be aware of your negative traits, your negative actions. But I want you to start focusing on the positive and watch what that does to your mood. If you've been jumping to conclusions, you've been assuming you know the outcome of a situation or the thoughts and motives of another person. Okay, I want you to remind yourself gently. I say this gently and with love. You are not God. Okay, you are not omniscient. 
You do not know what other people are thinking. You do not know why they do what they do. And you do not know the future. Again, I say this with love. I have had to say this with love to myself. Okay. We don't. We have to be willing to live it out to find it out. Magnification. You've been making your negative trait or a flaw so big that it's drowning out everything else about you. It's time to balance your perception of yourself by highlighting what's positive about yourself. If you've been emotional reasoning, you've been assuming that because you feel something, it must be true. Start to differentiate between your thoughts and your feelings, like I said before, by naming what you feel. Now, some of us get trapped by saying things like, well, you know, I feel like she doesn't like me. Okay, that is a thought. That is not a feeling. What is the feeling? I feel rejected. I feel like he's an untrustworthy jerk and I don't need to give him a minute of my time. No, no, no. That's not a feeling. That's a thought. What do you feel? I feel apprehensive. Okay. Now we can deal with that. We deal with emotions. We don't make them our thoughts because if we make them our thoughts, we're going to make them what we believe. If we have been using should statements, you've been shoulding all over yourself. Stop. Stop doing that. Begin to say, here's where I am right now. And I'd like to grow to this place. What are the steps involved? If you've been labeling, you've, re- you've been reducing everything down to a label. You've been reducing human beings in all of their complexity, yourself included, down to a label. Begin to embrace the beautiful and sometimes confusing reality of humanity. People are not one thing. You are not one thing. Walt Whitman famously said, I contain multitudes. So do you. So does she. So does he. So do they. You can name how you feel without labeling someone. Personalization and blame. You've been filtering out the whole picture in favor of blaming yourself or someone else. So we've got to begin to see and learn how dynamics interplay with one another. We're like pinball machines, guys. We're bouncing off one another, affecting one another. We're in systems. It's a cycle. You are not solely to blame. Other people are not solely to blame. We've got to accept nuance. What is nuance? Nuance is a subtle difference in meaning or expression. In order to perceive nuance, you've got to be attuned to it. If we're in black and white thinking, we're not seeing nuance at all. We need to breathe, slow down, identify our thoughts and put them to the test. Is it true. All right, let's pause there. Thank you for listening. You know, this Henry Ford quote, and what a brain that was. Good old Henry Ford. Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason so few engage in it. Friends, when we're coming out of stinking thinking, okay, when we're getting these cognitive distortions in our hand and under control, we're beginning to think actually for the first time instead of being conditioned. And I need to do a podcast on conditioning. But when we've been conditioned to think, this is why I said it's problematic. It's ingrained. It's habitual. We're not consciously in the moment thinking through something rationally. We're just in, you know, learned ingrained habitual responses that happen at the speed of light. These neural pathways happen really, really fast. We've got to slow down and ask ourselves, is it true? All right. So some of you are asking me, can I still buy the book on Amazon? Yes. Go to Amazon. Google, uh, put in the search bar, Vanessa Landino, and the toolbox will pop up. And if you've read the book, please, please consider leaving a review on Amazon. I would love to read it. And it's really, really good for the book sales. So I'm going to selfishly ask if you would take the time to do that. That would be amazing. Again, if you want to get in touch with me about anything about the podcast, questions you have about this podcast, if you'd like me to do a podcast on something, the podcast at vanessalandino.com. 
you want to follow me on Instagram, you can message me there. It's Vanessa the Therapist, real simple. Remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. Friends, loving yourself means living grounded in reality. It means taking care of your thoughts because they're going to drive your whole life. All right. Till next time. This podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Landino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Landino podcast.